Hi, and welcome to the Fractal Marketing Podcast. My name is Jared Doyle, and on this show, I take marketing questions from listeners and provide answers so that everybody who tunes in can learn a little bit more about marketing and hopefully find some ideas for their business. Hi, and welcome to episode six of the Fractal Startup Marketing Podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing two topics from listener questions. The first topic is on split testing, landing page testing, etc. And the second topic is an area that I'm quite interested in because I've got a lot of experience, but it's around location-based apps and, and how they've basically gone out of favor. So without wasting any time, let's jump straight into the first question. So the first question this week comes from Justin from Talentvine, who asks, with such a focus on A-B testing and marketing, where do we draw the line with so many variables? From testing different images, taglines, colors, etc., without being paralyzed from all of this. Where do you just get something out there and stick with it as opposed to constantly feeling the need to iterate and get a slight small percentage benefit? Great question, Justin, as I guess all my questions are. Look, I guess I'll answer this in, in two parts. And, and the first area is that I honestly think that you do have to always be testing. I think this comes from you know a lean sort of hacker startup mentality with marketing is that you should always be testing, you should always be looking to improve. But I put a big caveat on that and that, look, it also depends on the volume and of what you're testing and also not overdoing it. So what I mean by that is let's think about your business and think about the number of say hits you've got on a homepage. Now as a recruitment-based business, you're going to have a lot of hits, but it's not going to be an astronomical number. We're going to be talking about maybe thousands of daily visitors, but we're not talking about hundreds of thousands or even millions. And so if you were to run too many tests on your site at the moment, you know, you're never going to reach any kind of statistical significance with those tests. So I think you're in a privileged position where you probably can afford to be doing less testing because you do need to get enough of a sample size to make sure it's relevant. But in saying that, I would always be looking for something to test. There's always an area to improve. Now, you know, as a, as a rule of thumb, you might consider doing an 80-20 split. So it's always safe to spe- you know, to keep 80% of your traffic going to a page that you know converts and a solution that you know works and just leave 20% of your traffic or visitors to your site to experience a different scenario. That way you, you're basically banking what you know what you know, and you're testing only with a small sort of 20% sample size. So I think if you take that approach, it probably moves away from what I'm assuming is your fear is that, you know, there's a lot of tests going on, a lot of things going backwards and forwards, and you're not making huge gains. The um, other area I'd really like to look at is, I guess, considering the power of the human brain over split testing. So what I mean here is it's amazing how numbers can hide what can be plainly obvious to the human mind. And the best way to explain this or to demonstrate this is, to install some kind of sort of mouse tracking, user session tracking software that isn't necessarily focused on the stats, it's focused on recording the experience. A tool I've used before, which is quite cheap and relatively easy to use, is called Lucky Orange. And it's a fairly clunky bit of software, but it's it's good value, it's not too expensive, and I think you do get a 14 or maybe even a 30-day trial with it. And the thing Lucky Orange does well, I mean, it does a lot of different things, maybe it tries to do a bit too much, but the thing it does really well is it records user sessions. And those user sessions is basically a recording of the person when they come to your site, what they look at, how long they spend there, where their mouse goes, sort of areas they're clicking and maybe aren't getting responses. And it's amazing how these little elements, if you sit back and 
watch these videos, your brain will interpret things that might take, take statistics days, weeks, or even months to get to the same kind of inference, and in many cases won't be able to work out. So I mentioned the example there of clicking on images that aren't actually clicks. This is probably the most common thing I find when I'm watching a Lucky Orange video is that you watch a user, you watch their mouse go and they sort of click on something which you've put on the page but isn't an action, it's not part of the navigation. And you watch them click once, twice, three times, almost frustrating, you can imagine them sort of hitting it. It's kind of like the person standing at the, uh, the lights waiting to cross and you press the button to say, I'm waiting here and I want the green man to walk. But rather than press it once, you press it three times in a weird sense that if I press it three times, it might think there's three people. Well, users on your website do the same thing. Now, this person, it's a recording. This person's gone. But it's amazing when you watch it, you'll find yourself going, why are you clicking that? That's not right. And then you stop and think, well, maybe I could make it into a link. Maybe that should be the navigation. Maybe it's a little bit confusing. And things like that just aren't going to show up in software. So I like this because it's something you can do with a glass of red wine after hours at home, set your laptop up, watch you know an hour's worth of videos of people on your website. You need to drink a red wine. You don't need to output anything. You're basically looking just to relax and just absorb what the people are doing. And I kind of like to express the importance of this in, in creating analogy with uh, somebody who owns, say, their own restaurant. You wouldn't imagine that the owner of a restaurant would never look at their restaurant. They always You can always sort of see the owner, if they're not working, lurking around the back of the restaurant, having a look, watching the customers come in, watching what they order, how they interact, what they're happy with, what they're sad with, how they, you know, how quickly they're being served, the likelihood of tips, all these kind of things. But they're, they're basically just absorbing what's happening with the business to help them frame how they can better improve what they're doing. Yet with a website, we so often throw it up, the visitors come in, we might look at some statistics, but we don't get to really see the way people interact. And so to sort of finish off that analogy, the equivalent would be the store owner or the restaurant owner coming at the end of the night and collecting the takings and looking at how much they got. So saying, oh, we had 15, you know, covers, we had this much money taken, had this many staff. That's kind of it. If that was all you did, you could easily be confused by the numbers and miss the really obvious things that the human brain will pick up if you're paying attention. Now, getting back to the split testing element, I think... It's really important too to understand the limitations of split testing in the way that most people apply them. And, and look, I think we're all in some way guilty of taking this exact approach. And that is that we consider all split testing as being binary, sort of yes or no, on or off, winner, loser. And the reality is that, you know, it's actually shades of gray. You're never going to get something where one solution drives 100% of sales and the other solution does zero. So there's always an element of gray in here. Now, in principle, in the, in the simplest scenario with a, with a test where you've got A and B, yeah, it's really logical. One's better than the other. You switch to the other or the winner of the test and you're going to make more money, more sales or whatever your primary KPI is. Now, the limitation occurs every single time you add another variable. So what I mean by that is you run the risk of sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face as you sort of chase down avenues of binary decisions and sort of this is the winner, this is the winner, this is the winner. And what happens is, and this is typical of sort of an, an analyst or an, you know, an analyzing perspective is you find yourself constantly reducing the scope of your business and your view because each time you make a binary decision, you're cutting off one of the options in spite of the potential that might occur. So, uh, it's hard to understand, but if you can imagine every single decision you make where you pick one choice over the other, you're actually limiting the chance to look back at those options later on. So let me um, 
I'll give you an example of how that might play out. So let's just say I'm a, a craft beer company and I've got a new beer and the beer is done, but I've got to do the branding behind it. And I'm just going to look at two variables. One is the label and the, say the image I'm going to put on that label and the other is the price. Now, if I ran these as two binary decisions or split tests, I might say come up with one label, which has got a picture of sort of a, a young, good looking lady. And that's the first label and it's tested. And the other label might have sort of hipster bearded, young craft beer kind of guys. And, you know, we kind of, we, we imagine we're appearing to appealing to a different market here, but we run the test and it turns out that the young lady on the label sells 60% more beer. So we go, great, fantastic, that decision's made, that's nice and clear, our beer is gonna have the picture of the young lady on it, no problem. At the same time, we run another test, which is around pricing, which is one of the other beer elements for sort of beer or wine. And, and quite simply, what we're trying to do is increase the amount of revenue. Now we know that obviously if we increase the price, well, not obviously, but the assumption is we increase the price, we're gonna sell less, but really we're after maximum revenue here. So we run the test, one high priced price point for the sort of six pack of beer and, and one lower. Run the test and it turns out that the higher price point beer, whilst it sells slightly less, actually drives a lot more revenue. Again, decision made. Now in this overly um, simplistic example I've given, we've now got two tests that were statistically proven, statistically significant, that we need to be selling high priced beer with a picture of a young lady on the label. But you can already tell where I'm going with this. The combination of those two could in theory actually produce a worse result. It might be that the higher price is actually more relevant to people who are beer connoisseurs. So they're people who are likely to align themselves with the person who's brewing the beer, i.e. the label with the young hipster beer brewers than the young lady. And it might be that the lower price point associates with the sort of more sort of sexist old style, if you'd like, um, beer label. And so you can see how we've created these sort of false positives with what we've been able to achieve. So that's a really long-winded way of sort of answering your question. But I think it's important that I express that because there's a reason why split testing software now is really good. And it's not just because it's able to run lots of tests and measure them for you, but it's because most of them apply this sort of, I think it was Japanese, and I'm going to make a terrible pronunciation, but I think it's Takanuchi, um, who was sort of after the Second World War, a Japanese scientist who came up with a way of testing multiple variables at the same time and how the different variables interact with each other. And once you put it into a system, you're able to test lots of these examples at the same time. So no examples, um, different variables. So getting back to your original question, Justin, you know, if you can use software that is able to apply this Takanuchi principle, which most of them will do, you can actually throw 30 or 40 different variables in there and the software will work out what ones are working, what ones aren't, and it won't make binary decisions and sort of drop entire parts or options for your business away. It'll just focus on the collective best decision to make. But as I said, you probably don't have a huge amount of traffic. So you only need, you can let this run maybe with 20% of your traffic for a long period of time. That way you are doing your testing, you are doing your learning because you do have to always be split testing. But at the same time, really sort of stopping and saying, am I making incorrect decisions by making binary split tests? The final thing I would say is back yourself for making big slicing and U-turn decisions. Analysis tends to always be iterative, small decisions, like small changes, multiple variables, but are all heading the same direction. Again, getting back to the power of the human brain and, and definitely take me up on that red wine scenario. I think I, I'd, I'd love to hear how that goes for you. 
But the second thing is let your brain sort of wander and come up with that completely different way to approach something. That's something, again, it's the art form of marketing that moves away from the science. It's that combination of the two that you just go, I'm going to completely transform the way my website works. And it's a whole different approach. And that opens up a whole new slew of variables that you can test. But it's the kind of thing that testing very rarely brings forward. It's always the human brain, the art side of marketing that makes a difference there. So look, I hope that's given you a few ideas. Like I said, keep testing, keep trying. There's better solutions out there and hopefully it works out for you. So the second question today comes from Jason Davis, who's the founder of Halfback.co, who asks, there was a slew of location-based shopping or experience-based apps around a couple of years ago and now not so much. You know, when you walk past the store and you get pinged because you like the shoes and there's a sale inside, what happened to them? And is there anyone you know, aside from Google, doing location-based marketing well? Well, Jason, you've touched on a, I guess it's an area, it's a bit of a sore point. It's a bit of an area where I've got a lot of experience and that's around this location-based marketing. Because when I came back to Brisbane from London five and a half years ago, it's starting to get away from me now, I launched the business zippy.com.au and I've mentioned this before in the podcast. And one of the things that Zippy was did at a point there was we really focused on what it was to try to drive deals through an app. So we were absolutely one of the many apps trying to, I guess, break into this market. And look, at the time, it was just standard practice. I think everybody was out trying to build a double-sided, deal-based location business model. And I'd, I'd also you know, spent probably the previous three years as CEO of discountvouchers.co.uk, obviously in the UK, doing a version of vouchers and daily deals. So I knew the power of daily deals. I'd seen what Groupon had done. I'd seen how much money was available. So, you know, like most people attracted by that, I guess the draw of unlocking all that potential revenue from small business retailers that's out there who genuinely, and, and this is what Groupon did well, Groupon allowed us to see the power of small businesses, how much money was out there if you could get a solution for them. So I think the location-based app thing was really a case of everyone looking saying, we've now recognized how much potential money is out there with small retailers. So if we can provide a solution, that, you know, it's a big market, big opportunity, you know, we're going to have a valuable business. So a lot of people chase solutions. And logically, apps were the place that you went because an app in theory can know where you are. Apps were the new business model you know you had startups launching that were an app for and then variations on that so we were trying to zippy do sort of a daily deal location based trigger app as well we even went through the process of um importing and branding and linking bluetooth beacons up to everything we did so at one stage we were in direct conversations with two of the biggest manufacturers of bluetooth beacons in the world strangely enough two of the three big companies are based in krakow in poland issues and and one issue is deals it's never great to push a deal out like it's um it's really hard to do that email and groupon email still a passive thing i can still choose when i want to open my email push notifications on an app it's another situation it's it's on the communication hierarchy a push notification is much like a text message you know text messages are called instant messages for a reason um because they're there to be reacted with at that point in time it's fairly rare that I'm going to get a text message at the exact moment where I want to consume it. In the same way, it's rare that I'm going to get an alert that says, and I'm going to say, yes, at this exact moment, I want to stop and look at shoes. And I think that's one of the problems. The other, other couple of big problems with the whole area is 
It requires a lot of data input. So it requires businesses to really be on top of pushing that data out there. And look, almost all these businesses are two-sided business models. So I won't go into detail because I covered that in a previous episode, but double-sided or two-sided business models are inherently difficult because you have to build up this user base. So you have to have a few hundred people walking past one small retailer in a location every day to get enough pings to make a difference to their business. And to get that kind of trans, you know, get that kind of traction, that's going to be really hard to build the business up. So I think the ambition is still out there. I see a lot of companies still, startup companies that is coming through with models around this, but it's really hard now for venture capitalists to fund these businesses. The example I had, so this is, you know, five, so four and a half years ago, going around the city, going around cities in Australia, going down to Sydney, going down to Melbourne, pitching VCs. And I, look, I'm an arguer, right? So I would I would have a debate with all the VCs. I would argue why I had a solution, why Zippy was the solution for location-based deals and, and, and with an app. And most of the time, you know, I'd kind of, two things would happen. One, either we'd kind of just debate forever to the point where the, the VC kind of, I guess, started to not like me so much. But a lot of the VCs would ultimately just say, look, we're not going to beat you in the argument. You seem to have an answer for everything, which I don't think says great, great things about me. But, but they said, look, it's just a hard industry to break. It's really hard to get retailers to part with money. You've got to have a really simple proposition that allows them to put some money in, not think too much about it, and get some kind of quantifiable output that doesn't require too much understanding. And that's what Daily Deals did well. Daily Deals allowed someone to go, here's an offer. And they then Groupon would do everything else. They create the landing pages, send the emails, collect the details, collect the payments, and then ultimately just invoice the business at the end. So it was a, it was a simple proposition for a business to buy. And it was really trackable. You know, they'd get the vouchers, they'd get the customers, they knew something was happening. All these other app-based solutions are just a struggle. It's really difficult for them to work. And the other thing too is just straight reach, you know, getting an app installed. Um, is difficult it was one of those areas when bluetooth came out and beacons came out where we thought well this is going to be the future every every store is going to have a beacon there's going to be a way you can can communicate with mobile devices but ultimately unless you've got the app installed unless the user has the app installed it's really hard almost impossible to get that push notification coming through you know at the end of your question you talk about you know is there anyone else aside from google doing location-based marketing well look it's the people with the reach so I remember Foursquared for a while were the kings of this market. But these days, actually, it's not Google. I'm, I'm more looking at Facebook. Facebook is that app that you're willing to allow to run in the background all the time. It can always track your location. So you can imagine this market is basically going to be dominated by the internet players that have that right to be present all the time. So Google is one with Maps and Android phones, obviously, and Search. Google Assistance is another way that it's going to work. Apple is sort of a secret player, like a, I guess a sleeping giant in this market with all the iPhone devices out there. And Facebook, Facebook is the ubiquitous messaging, communication, social inter- interaction tool. So it's there, it's got fantastic mobile you know, uptake. So it's running all the time. So it's in a better place to make this location-based marketing as well. So really for me, it just comes down to scale. These businesses have the execution, they have the scale to be able to deliver their location-based marketing. So if I'm looking at it from a small retailer point of view, if someone's asking for my advice, it's not going to be to test some app. It's going to be, well, I know my customers are on Google, Apple, and Facebook. Let's just start there. 
Facebook's got pretty good targeting now. They get down to a one mile radius. You know, you add interest to people passing through an area, particular time of day, that's great. You don't have to build up that side of the audience. So if I want to target, say, people who don't live in Melbourne, but so people live outside of Melbourne, but happen to be traveling through the CBD of Melbourne near a restaurant that's Mexican and it's healthy, and I can put a whole lot of interest into people into Facebook. So I'm saying, okay, I want people who don't live in Melbourne, but happen to be right now between 11.30 and 1.30 during a weekday in the CBD of Melbourne. And they're interested in Mexican or tacos, or maybe they're vegetarian or health food or whatever it happens to be. I layer all that information together. And then my Facebook posts appear at that point in time. And yeah, Facebook's that thing that, you know, sort of the ads appear in the Facebook feed. And the great thing about a Facebook feed is if you think back to when I said that instant message, we say, am I ready right now to receive a push notification? The act of opening up the Facebook feed and flicking through that feed, you're basically saying right now, I'm willing to consume some content. Facebook, tell me what that content's going to be. If that content happens to suggest where I'm going to go right now for lunch, that's when you're going to get the win. So I think all the ideals are great. I think all the executions are fantastic. I think it's just the way that you push that notification out there and the way that you get that mass audience reach is the difficulty. And I think at least the money, the investment money in the industry has decided that it's a battle that's too hard and that even though there's a huge amount of money on the table, it's money that's going to be ultimately scooped up by the people that have the large user base. So Apple, Facebook, Google, they're going to get it to work. Maybe there's going to be a lucky company that's got a great execution that one of these companies picks up and says, we can adapt that to what we want to achieve and add our scale to it. But I wouldn't be making a play into that space. So look, I hope that helps as somebody who's got the battle scars to sort of, you know, say it's a tough market. It is really, really hard to make this work. But um, I think the ambition is still there. I think the market has been defined. I think the opportunity has been defined. I think even to some degree the execution has. It's just that scale play. And I don't think anyone, or there's no investors in Australia, and probably even in the US, are really willing to back the scale play that's going to be required. So lastly, I just want to talk a little bit about the icebreakers of the startup industry. The icebreakers are the people are the founders who've got a vision. They've got a mission to change something about the world or an industry and the way we interact with it. Um, the icebreaker, unfortunately, though, often gets unrecognized for their achievements. They get unrewarded for what they were able to achieve and often chastised retrospectively for a failed business. And very rarely are they given the credit for changing the way an entire industry might work just because they don't have the dollar signs to back up the success that ultimately they did achieve in disrupting an industry. So what I'm talking about here is, and I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I'd you know, done some work in daily deals and with Groupon. And so I guess what I want to do is sort of say, Groupon will go down in business history as being one of those businesses that failed. It blew up spectacularly. And and, and people are quite, especially when I talk about being involved with the people are quite disparaging about the industry. Well, it was never going to work and it hasn't done this and it hasn't done that. And all the restaurants got ripped off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what people forget is just how much Groupon demonstrated to the world that email was still a valid form of communication, how local retailers are desperate for a way to grow their business using technology, but they don't know how. Just how important simplicity is. Also, how much a small retailer isn't a sophisticated marketer and given too much marketing power, they can blow themselves up. You know, the business failed, but did the business fail because 
it was fundamentally flawed as a business or was the idea fundamentally flawed? It's, it's hard to say, but I think what we forget to do is give credit to the people who changed the way in our perspectives as marketers on what was possible with location-based marketing. So I really do feel for the icebreakers because these are the founders that have got the fortitude to follow through with an idea. You tend to have to be a little bit crazy if you want to change the world. And, and the problem is that crazy often extends beyond just your willingness to, to come up with a new business idea. That crazy sometimes means you lose sight of everything else. And, and I think about Groupon and I think about that failure of Groupon. You know, people sort of question, you know, the founder and, and, and the company was created around that founder. But, you know, when you grow so quickly and you are singularly minded, you actually do tend to create pretty terrible organizations with that kind of growth. And I think more recently after Groupon, we've seen this with Uber. Uber is kind of blowing up from the inside but it's blowing up for HR reasons. It's about the people. It's about the way they treat the stakeholders. You know, th these are internal issues which can destroy any company, but the essence of Uber, the, the ride-sharing sort of freelance kind of part-time employed driver model that's completely transformed the taxi industry all over the world, there's no denying that Uber has been the driving force behind that. So you, you do have to look at Uber and you think, well, is it going to be the company that succeeds in the future? Well, maybe not, but we can definitely say that Uber's the one that created the industry. They had the tenacity to go into every country, every state, go up against their departments of transport, the regulators, and just sort of thumb their nose at them and say, we're going to do it this way anyway, and we're going to change the way the world works. So for me, this concept of first mover advantage and, and look, business academics have researched and written about this way more than I could ever read or even understand and potentially articulate in a podcast. But it is becoming more accepted wisdom that first mover advantage isn't that much anymore. You know, the idea that in a slow moving world where if you were first to market, you could establish a share, maybe that doesn't work anymore. Maybe maybe that advantage is diluted by the ability for somebody to come second. So is it going to be a lift who comes second with a much more structured fairer approach to the way they're going to grow their business, who actually is a business that succeeds. You know, I think about where Facebook is, and they're in a dominant position now, but by no means was Facebook the icebreaker. I, they weren't the people, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't come up with the concept. He really benefited from the movement of Bebo or MySpace and these kind of social networks that ran just slightly before him, but he was able to take, or, or you know, Facebook as a business were able to benefit a lot from the learnings of those businesses and apply them to what they were able to do. So I guess this short rant really is about let's not lose sight of the icebreakers. Let's not lose sight of what they were able to achieve and make sure that we don't just credit success with those who make money off the back of it, but credit success in business to the pioneers, the ones that break into new industries that change the way we deal with something. They may not make all the money, they may not have the success at the end, but the tenacity and the fortitude to go through and change an industry and potentially shape a whole new wave of startups that can come after that icebreaker with a better model to realize the vision that they had, that deserves some credit. Thanks for listening to that latest episode, guys. I've just got two quick favors to ask of you here right at the end. Firstly, if you have any questions, please shoot them through. This podcast only exists because I answer the questions that listeners send in. So if you head along to fractal.com.au slash questions, that'll redirect you to the latest episode and you can drop your questions down there. 
Those questions you submit become the basis for each episode. So if you've got a question around SEO, paid search, growth hack marketing, PR, brand positioning, market segmentation, anything you might like to know that's going to help your business, drop the question down there and I'll try to answer it on the next episode. If you don't have any questions, that's absolutely fine. The other thing you can do is head on over to fractal.com.au slash subscribe. Subscribing to this podcast not only delivers each episode straight through to your smartphone, but it really helps me reach a bigger audience all the time. That subscription really helps me out. So if you can do that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your time again and see you next week.